you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. In the coming weeks, we are going to be going through a series in the Lord's Prayer. And I want to begin by looking at the verses just before Jesus teaches us about how to pray itself and in which he introduces the subject of prayer here in Matthew 6. So we're going to pick up from verse 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, Jen's going to put the words on the screen just behind me. So don't worry about that too much. But it does obviously help a great deal if you bring one with you. I encourage you to do so. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, if I were to ask you the question, what was it about Jesus that so attracted people to Him? And I think particularly of the disciples who walked so closely with Him and gave up so much in order to be near to Him. What was it about Christ that was so powerfully compelling that men were willing to give up so much, to pay such a price to be near to this man? And I think we can give many answers to that question because it it really can't be boiled down to one thing, can it? And we could speak about his extraordinary and transparent holiness and purity of heart. You could speak about his authority and poise, his wisdom and his teaching. You could talk about his compassion and kindness that whoever came into contact with Jesus when they were in a place of need or pain or brokenness. Jesus was there for them. You could speak of his power and his miraculous power. There's so many elements of who Christ is that caught people's attention. But I think that beneath all of this, that what in a sense lies at the root of it all was Christ's spirituality. And by that I mean the fact that he walked in the closest possible fellowship with the Father. And this is most evident to us in the way that Jesus prayed. And the fact that his prayer life pervaded everything that he did. We find him at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, seeking God for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting. You find him occasionally all night in prayer. Sometimes you discover him rising early before anyone's awake to go and find a solitary place outside of town so that he can meet with God. Sometimes he's on a mountain seeking God in prayer. You see him there, don't you, at the end of just before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, in prayer. And so for those observing the life of Christ, I think the thing that struck them above all was the reality, this is someone who knows God. 
Of course, we now understand fully why that is the case, that he is the Son of God, that he had enjoyed a completely uninterrupted relationship with God. But the Lord Jesus also invited us into this experience of friendship with the Father and of intimacy with him. And this is what we were going to be thinking about and dwelling upon in the coming weeks. What is it to know God? What does it mean to have a friendship with God through prayer? Now, I know that in opening up the subject of prayer in this way, that there are two opposing reactions within our hearts, and probably a mingling of the two, actually, in, in all of us to a certain degree. That there is, on the one hand, the sense of frustration because of a sense of failure in this area in our lives. And there are all kinds of reasons for this, aren't there? You can think about the obstructions to prayer in terms of circumstances in life. You know, we're parents of young children. It is difficult to find a moment of the day in which your thoughts are not interrupted by noise. And those of you who spend most of your time with young kids will understand that acutely. And those of you who aren't, which is the majority of you, you also feel that your days are full, whether it's the busyness of life and the constant sense of the pace of life, especially here in a city like London. And therefore, it feels like our lives are not constructed for solitude and calm and the experience of walking with God in that way. Add to that, of course, the reality of constant distraction You can't remember when you last experienced space and even boredom because every crack and crevice of your life is filled with something, with some form of distraction. And I think with this, of course, there are the spiritual maladies which prevent people from from praying. And I think particularly about the experience of condemnation, that you you know your sin better than anyone else knows it, right? And you're aware of the accusations of the enemy and you're aware of a heaviness of heart at times and a sense of failure and that that can hold you back from, from walking closely with God. You put all this together and it seems as though our lives are not necessarily constructed in such a way that we experience an ease and a fluidity and a simplicity in coming to God in prayer. And I say that's one half of our reaction, but the other half is there also, isn't it? Which is that the minute that we address this subject, there is an aspiration inside of you, isn't there? That you know that to foster and develop a depth of spirituality would be to experience nothing but good in your life. And it's something you want, something you desire. And I think about how the invitation of the Scriptures so resonates with us, doesn't it? Places like Psalm 27 that I read at the beginning of the service, where God says, seek my face. And the psalmist replies and says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? And you read or hear a verse like that and You want to be that person. You want to be the person who seeks God. I've never met a Christian who doesn't desire that at some level. They want to go deeper. It's there also, isn't it, later in the Psalms. You think about Psalm 42. 
which so famously opens with these verses. As a deer pants for, lit, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And you are conscious, aren't you, of a thirst that would invite you and draw you into a deeper experience of intimacy and relationship and friendship with the living God. He says a little bit further on in that psalm, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And there's a sense in which if knowing God is like bathing in the deep parts of a great body of water, you are not content paddling in the shallows. There is, there is a part of you that wants to, to be drawn deeper into the experience of intimacy and relationship with God. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, wrote this. He said, you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. There is something, in other words, that is deeply instinctual, natural, about the impulse and the urge to pray. It's as natural in one sense as the desire to breathe. There is a desire to gasp in air, and so there is a desire to come to God and experience the depths of relationship with him in prayer. So we have this, this competition, don't we? This tension, this tug of war in our lives constantly. The longing to go deeper, the frustration with what we have experienced to now. And so it is, I want to unpack with Jeremy in the coming weeks, this Lord's Prayer. And I want to begin by just explaining to you my personal motivations in wanting to get into this for, as a church. I am very aware of the danger of churches experiencing kind of superficial health, that you can have vibrant gatherings and times of worship, you can have warm community you can have a hunger for the Word of God and to be taught. And none of that is meaningless, and none of that in and of itself is superficial. Please don't mishear me. These are precious things that we want. But I'm aware that it's possible to enjoy much of that good without that being undergirded by the reality of each one of us as individuals walking closely with the Lord outside of the context of Sundays. But I'm also aware that it only takes a spark. That sometimes a community or a church like ours comes alive spiritually through the impact of individuals. Just ones and twos whose spiritual life is on fire. And... I know this from my reading of history, my observations in life, that sometimes just one or two individuals can have an outsized impact on the life of a congregation when people have a passionate heart for God. And my hope, my desire is that as we explore what Christ wanted for us in terms of friendship with the Lord through this prayer, that individuals among us will experience a deep kindling of heart and of spirit, a passion to desire, to desire and to walk with God closely. I want it for all of us, but in one sense, you do not bear a responsibility for this beyond yourself. The pressure or the impetus, the invitation is upon you 
How will you respond to Christ's invitation here to know God in this way? So in coming weeks, we'll want to unpack this. But before we get into the content of the prayer itself, Jesus begins a little bit further back, doesn't he? He starts by laying out the essential things that are necessary in order to begin to even attempt to pray. In other words, he's saying, this is what you must know and this is how you must approach the Father before you even begin in prayer. What is it that Christ wants us to know then about friendship with God before we even open our mouths in prayer? Let me show you what he teaches us here. First of all, he teaches us that friendship with God must be real. That it must be genuine, that it must be authentic. And in this, in the sermon as a whole, this is, this section that we read comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's longish sermon that he preached to the crowd there. What he's doing again and again throughout the sermon is he's going directly to the greatest danger of all for believers. What is it that he's attacking here? And it's not necessarily sins in our lives in general, because Christ can deal with sin in your life. Whatever your sin is, Christ can deal with it. He has the competence and the grace and the power through his blood to deal with your sin. Your sin need not be an obstacle between you and God. Nor is he primarily concerned to deal with the issue of coldness of heart because the Lord can revive our spirits. He can, he can give you passion and, and bring warmth and life and vitality to your heart again. The thing which Christ, it seems to me, goes against, it speaks towards again and again, the problem which is at the root of all spiritual sickness and which prevents people from even approaching God is the issue of faking it in the Christian life of what he describes as hypocrisy. Which is why when he gets into the theme of prayer, the first thing that he says, when you pray, by the way, there's an assumption there, isn't there? You love God, you are going to pray. As Matthew Henry said, there's nothing more natural, is there? But he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Why is this such a deep concern for the Lord when he's speaking to people who ostensibly are followers of God? And I think the answer and the reason why this is so dangerous is a couple of things. One is because to engage in Faking it and hypocrisy in the Christian life is a deceit on many levels. It is, a de- it is an attempt to deceive God in the sense that you are wanting, in a sense, to wear a mask before him. It's an attempt to deceive others in that you are putting on a performance of spirituality. And I think worst of all and most dangerous of all is the reality that we can attempt to deceive ourselves. We can trick ourselves into thinking that we are walking with God by engaging in the routines and the practices of a, of a spiritual life when, it, when there's a hollowness at the core. 
And so it is a deceptive way of living. And I think Christ absolutely wants to peel back and unmask the deception that can be involved in the life of so-called Christians. And that's certainly one of the great dangers of this. And the other is that, you think about this. What Christ is speaking to here is the fact that when we are engaged in a kind of hypocritical and, and fake way of relating to God, God is no longer necessary to the practice of spirituality. God becomes surplus to requirements because the kind of person that the Lord Jesus is describing here engages in spiritual practices not to know God, but to put on a show for others and maybe for themselves. God is no longer part of this. Not in any real or meaningful way. It's not really about him. And this is why he renders this verdict in verse 5 when he says, Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What he means is that there is a way of praying in which you get the answer to your prayer there in the spot because all you wanted from prayer was the kudos of appearing spiritual. And that is all the prayer is worth. You've got your reward because it had nothing to do with God in the first place and God doesn't hear such prayers. How can we develop an authentic and deep, real spirituality is the question. And the answer that Christ gives here, and the thing which he emphasizes is the absolute importance of secrecy. He says in the next verse, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I don't think, by the way, that Christ is in any way discounting the value and the necessity of being with God's people to worship, to pray, to seek God. I don't know anyone who can sustain the Christian life in total isolation. And as you know, we repeatedly emphasize and re-emphasize the importance of being together, of this being like the rhythm of walking or of breathing in our Christian life, that we gather together so to fuel ourselves and to experience the power of being a body. This is not in any way to diminish that. And Christ never, never undermined the importance of being the gathered people. But what he is... Shining the spotlight on here is the fact that for our walk with God to be real, it must be underwritten by. The gathered fellowship must be underwritten by the reality of you walking with the Lord personally and in the secret place. You knowing him directly. Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor who died at a young age but left an in, an, an, a disproportionate impact through his life and ministry. And he said this. He said, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Everything else, in other words, is false and deceptive. The real test and the real 
mark of who we are as Christians is what we are on our own before God on our knees in prayer. That's the reality. Why is that? Well, I think because secret prayer works on a couple of levels. The first level on which it works is that it removes the temptation to be a performer. You can't perform on your own before God in prayer, can you? Which might be part of the reason why so many of us find it so difficult to pray on our own. You know, the impact and the presence of observation, right? And how it changes your behavior. How the presence of being watched, and especially by cameras. We have cameras everywhere, don't we? How cameras change our behavior. You know, if I were to pull out my portable camera here, and uh, otherwise known as an iPhone, switch it to video mode, and press record. How does this affect your behavior as listeners? None of you are yawning. <laughs> Everyone is watching. Maybe some of you feel immediately coy and you want to hide. Others of you immediately look intent and earnest. <laughs> There's a sense in which you want to communicate how much you are listening <laughs> to the Word of God. Observation changes our behavior, doesn't it? And this is true in our lives altogether. We're a different person alone than we are in public. And so by removing the observing eyes of others, prayer is stripped back. The temptation to fake it is removed because you are nothing but yourself before God. And that's one way in which secret prayer is so vital for us. It takes away that temptation. And by the way, this is why it's so ridiculous that you may well be tempted when you're on your own in prayer to pull out the camera and document the moment for the sake of your social media feed and following, which I just think is the greatest irony of all, isn't it? Jesus said, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father in secret, and then post it on Instagram later on for the benefit of your followers. Complete nonsense, right? So it removes that temptation to perform. But what it also does, friends, more positively, is it, it heightens your awareness that you are communicating directly with God. Now, I, I will be the first to admit that I think praying with others is easier. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's supposed to give strength and support to our prayer lives. It's why it's good to find ways to pray with others, to come to the church prayer meetings whether before services or our monthly gathering, or to informally gather with friends, or to have a weekly time when you gather with a couple of friends in a triplet and pray with them. All these things are good and wonderful, but they also can mask to a degree what might be lacking in terms of our awareness of directly relating to God. And that cannot happen when you're on your own in secret. You become acutely aware it's me and you Lord and this is it I'm relating to you and this is why Jesus brings us reassurance immediately in he says and your father who sees in secret will reward you do you do you know do you want to know what it is to know God face to face friend I think that you must relate to God privately secretly in total isolation and don't let anything intrude that space either don't let anyone intrude. Don't let any device or distraction intrude. 
Find a space and a time in which it is you and God. And so you can experience something that is more real and more authentic. Friend, isn't this such a desperate need for so many of us? You come to God on, on Sundays and you wonder why you feel cold. You wonder why it's hard to worship with passion and liberty. You wonder why it takes you 20 minutes to warm up. And the answer is, well, you can't come in empty, friends. The body of Christ is meant to come in hot, having been fueled up in the week by relating to God personally and authentically in this genuine and real way and so we can be a blessing to others so you don't just come into church creeping in on empty like some of those cars before the petrol stations running on gas and being pushed in to get the what remained in the pumps but you come in ready to bless others isn't this so needed in the church of God friendship with God has to be real it has to be authentic then I think the Lord tells us this the friendship with God must also be direct and filtered. A vital and real connection. And this is, let me explain to you what I mean here. I think that our prayer lives can easily suffer with various sort of maladies and sicknesses that develop. And I don't know a Christian who doesn't experience this at some level in their lives. And let me just explain to you the kinds of things that can afflict our prayer lives. Prayer can easily become rote. Rote is the, 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 uh, the uh, repeating of phrases that you know from memory. The Lord's Prayer itself, ironically, uh, has become a rote prayer to many of us because we, we grew up saying it in assemblies, didn't we, as children with almost zero engagement with the meaning of the phrases that we were saying. And rote prayer is not entirely bad, there's a strength that comes through repeating of things that you know from memory. It can remind you of truths that the people of God have prayed for centuries, but it is also a problem. It seems to me to be a problem that can afflict churches that emphasize liturgy, where you work through a, um, a prayer book and recite prayers that you've maybe prayed thousands of times since you were a child, and so become somewhat devoid of meaning occasionally. But it's also a problem, friends, please, Let's recognize it's a problem also for churches like ours that are non-liturgical because how easy it is in prayer to simply slip into the rote phrasing that we've rehearsed and repeated so many times. Nothing fresh, nothing real, nothing in the moment. It's just like, like the way that your car, if you've ever driven a car through a field and how easily the tire tracks fall into the grooves that have been worn through tractor tires how that happens, doesn't it, in prayers. We fall in, we slip into the easy ways of expressing ourselves to God. And so, in a sense, we're no longer praying. We're simply saying words we've always said. Along with that, of course, is the problem of just entering into mindless repetition. My, my two-year-old has a, a delightful way of praying. Um, he, he's, I don't know where he's picked this up from, whether it's from me, whether it's from C. I don't know. He has a prayer tone. And at first, all he could say was the word pray, and he would go, pray, 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 with a frown on his face and close his eyes, pray. And more recently, he's, he's gone into this way of praying around the family, and he, he prays for Seth and Isla and Mummy. 
and Seth and Isla and Mummy and Seth and Isla and Mummy. And um, he does this around and around. He can go for two or three minutes just praying for this in, in this circle. And it's like he's locked into repetitive mode. I have to always intervene, say, Amen. And he says, Amen. <laughs> At that point, we free him from his, uh, from his, his being stuck in this repetitive prayer. But the friend, look, we laugh, he's too. How many of us do the same thing, right? Just mindlessly repeating the stuff you've prayed for years. And I think also prayer can become mechanical. You, same posture, same place, same tone of voice. And in this way, it's so predictable. And the effect of this is that it's like accumulating layers that prevent a genuine direct contact with God. You're here, God's there, and between you is all this fluff, these layers of mindless phrasing and repetition. When I was a kid, we had the little uh, cars that raced around tracks called Scale Electric. Scale electric cars were great fun, but they were also very annoying because they break constantly. The little brushes that were meant to pick up the electric power from the track, the brushes would wear away, and the track itself, where the metal contacts were, would become oxidized. And you had to get out, find sandpaper or rubber, and rub it until the electric, electricity could conduct again. And in a sense, our prayer lives can be like that through repetition and through habit. There's this oxidization that happens where you're no longer really experiencing the power of God. There's no real connection. It's just cold and dry and rote and dusty. And I, look, why, why is it that we fall into these habits? And I think there is only one answer to that. It's that we forget what we're doing and who we're speaking to. Like the way you're speaking and the way you're conducting yourself does not communicate that you are talking to the God who created you. This is why Jesus pointed as, by way of contrast to the pagans, in other words, or the Gentiles, people who didn't know the living God. He said, when you pray, do not babble, he said, or heap up empty phrases, it can be translated, as the Gentiles do. In other words, those who don't worship the living God. They worship all these man-made deities. But they think they'll be heard for their many words. You think, what's wrong with their prayers? And the answer is that their prayers go wrong because because they're not worshipping a living God to begin with. Their gods were more like humans. They were fallible. They were fickle, emotional. Sometimes favorable, sometimes not, was the perception. They needed to be woken up from sleep, or they needed to be, um, you know, cajoled into action. And so the pagan way of praying was to develop this just like a child, a child asks you a thousand times for the same thing, you know, until they drill in. It's like a, like a pneumatic drill. Do, 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 That's the way the pagans prayed, because eventually, if I say it enough times, I'll get through to this God who isn't listening. So the way they pray communicates about their theology of who God is. And the tragedy that Christ is say, pointing out here is that if we do the same thing, then that's what we really believe about God also. And so it becomes a little bit more like trying to win at slots. The addicted gambler who 
pulls the, the uh, one-armed bandit, as they're called, because they're stealing your money. Those machines, you just keep pulling, coin, pull, coin, pull, coin, pull. And the repetition, you think, eventually I'm going to get what I need from this, this deity if I do this enough times. And that is the exact opposite of relating to a person. So Christ, it's a denial of who God is. This is why Christ says in the next verse, do not be like them for your father, your father knows what you need before you ask him. What is he fostering in us instead? He's not advocating, because, you, know, you could reason, okay, God knows what I need, I don't even need to pray. I can just sit there in what some spiritual traditions describe as wordless prayer, which in the scriptures is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as wordless prayer. God wants you to pray. But what Christ is advocating here is he's saying, listen, you can speak to God like he's listening. The simplicity and directness, without the filters and the layers that separate you from a genuine connection with him. You think about the experience we had over the last couple of years, for many of us, for the first time, discovering the dubious joys and the enormous frustrations of relating to people through video calls, and how banter would fall flat, and jokes don't work, and how there'll be these awkward pauses, you don't know, and then you speak on top of each other, and then the line breaks up. And through it all, the, the, the one thing you do not sense you've experienced is anything like a human connection, right? Or any real confidence that your meaning has, has been communicated to the person who's listening. Because you don't know if they're even listening to you. They could have been browsing the internet or checking their social media. It looks like they're looking at you, but you know, because you do it yourself, <laughs> that they're distracted. And so our conversations are not, they're full of frustration, dissatisfying. And then you sit with someone face to face and you instantly know whether there's a connection. And when there's a connection, there's a simplicity of communication. My meaning is coming across. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, don't, don't be like the pagans, because their gods are so distant, given that they're non-existent, that they experience nothing but frustration in prayer. Babbling and babbling and babbling, repeating, repeating, repeating. He says, you can speak to God like he already knows what you're about to say, because he does. That's a connection, friends. When we pray these repetitive, rote, mechanical prayers, it's saying God isn't listening. But when we pray confident, direct prayer to God, we do so on the basis that we know that he knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. Friendship with God has to be direct. I want to say one last thing. I believe that friendship with God must not only be authentic and real, must not only be direct in this way. There is also another quality which I think comes through in Christ's teaching here, which is that friendship with God is, by definition, imbalanced. Now, let me explain what I mean when I say that it is imbalanced. This is the great difference between human friendship and relationship with God. Human friendship, a real relationship with another person is always must be characterized by a measure of balance you 
you give, but you also take from the other person. And when it's all giving and no taking or the other way around, that is a dysfunctional imbalanced relationship, right? You, you both have needs that are met through the relationship, relational needs and other forms of need that you meet in one another and so bind you together and tie you together into that relationship. And there is a sense in which the balance of the relationship keeps you both level. People are much happier and healthier when they have friendship, human friendship, because when I'm up, I can help my friends who are down, and when I'm down, they help me by when they're up. And so we find this balance in our relationship. It's especially evident um, in the differences that we have among our personalities, our different strengths and weaknesses. How some of us are melancholy by nature and some of us are joyful by nature and you put them together and you find this wonderful balance. And so many other ways in which human friendship helps bring, it must, is predicated on, on this, this sense of giving and receiving. And friendship with God is nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. He gives and you take. You're aware of your needs, and he has none. You are down. He is never down. God is always joyful, never anxious, always in control. And so this relationship is, in that sense, very much one way. Now, why is this so important to stress? Well, because of this, I think, underneath prayer... Prayer is always predicated on the reality of being aware of your deep need. This unashamed admission of need. That's what drives you to your knees in prayer. That's what makes prayer authentic and real in the moment. If I can put this negatively, I'd say this. A person who does not feel an absolute sense of need from the moment they wake up and therefore doesn't pray in that way or pray at all, is a person whose spiritual life is stunted, malnourished, or perhaps non-existent. Or to put it positively, a Christian who is maturing is someone who is realizing the depths of their need more and more day after day. And coming to rely upon God in a more childlike way as you grow older in the Christian life. So that... The definition of Christian maturity is reliance. A mature Christian is someone whose life is wholly dependent upon God. And it's our immaturity when we try and get through life without his help. Now this comes through clearly in the way Christ speaks about prayer before he even gets into the prayer in a couple of ways here. How he so unashamedly speaks of the rewards that God wants to give us through prayer. He says in verse 6, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, don't be embarrassed about the fact that the reason we pray is because we want to get something out of this. God wants you to understand his generosity as a father who wants to give you what you need. He wants to reward you in prayer. Sometimes Christians feel like this is a, too transactional. Like, oh, I can't come to God with a shopping list of needs. So, so, so like you've got everything already? You're, you're, already, you're already 
You're already sorted. Absolutely not. God is honored. He's glorified when we come to him with an absolute honest recognition. I have nothing without you, God. I need you. Reward me through this, this, this prayer. And another way that Christ puts it is he, he just assumes that it's our needs that bring us to God in prayer, doesn't he? He just says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You know, that's, in a sense, that's a definition of why we come to God in prayer. You come to him with your need. He knows your need. So you ask him, and he knows what he wants to do in response to that need. Everything that Christ says about prayer there, therefore, is undergirded by this assumption that the relationship has this fundamental imbalance. Now, don't misunderstand this. God loves it when you come into his presence. He delights in those who seek him. That's why the psalm says, seek, seek my face. But he absolutely does not need you. And it is we who are the beneficiaries when we come to God in prayer. And when that is, when that is so deeply embedded in us, there is, a, there is a non-embarrassed, unashamed way in which we just come on our faces before God every day and say, God, I am utterly empty. There's a bleakness without you. I need you today. Everything that I have of any good in my life comes from you. You're the God who gives. And in this way, friends, I think that prayer has to resemble the shape of the gospel that we believe and preach. What is the gospel? The gospel is this message that you contribute nothing to your salvation. All you bring to God is your mess. And even your good works are riddled with mess. You bring nothing. He gives everything. Christ takes your sin upon himself upon the cross and he gives you his righteousness. That is the heart of Christianity. So that I am the undeserving recipient of the blessings of heaven. I never earned it. I've done nothing to deserve it. It is all a gift of God's grace. And that is exactly the shape of prayer. Prayer is gospel shaped as well. I'm not giving anything to God. He asks for my worship, but it's not because he has any need. I'm the one who needs to worship. And he loves to give. He knows your needs before you ask him. And he wants to bless you. He wants to reward you. He wants you to seek him. Friend, are you conscious of these maladies? Maybe you've been faking it for a while. Maybe your prayer life has grown so, so dry and so rote and so repetitive that there's no real reality to it. God wants to humble us this morning, break through, strip away all of the detritus and all of the accumulated rubbish and bring us back to the reality of what it means to be a friend of God. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? Oh, Lord. We must confess to you how easy it is for us to play act. And how easy it is, Lord, for the accumulated layers of repetition and rehearsal to render our devotion dry and meaningless. And my prayer today 
is that you'll make us conscious of our great need so that we'll come to you on that basis. We'll come to you in total and abject humility. And Lord, that you'll begin to ignite the desire and the will to pray in brothers and sisters here so that we'll go out from this place with a renewed determination to seek you, Lord. And I pray that in the coming weeks as we explore what prayer looks like and what prayer is built upon and how to pray, I pray, Lord, that in the coming weeks you will reset and reform the prayer lives of dozens of people in this church so that we will have a life with you outside of our experience together on Sundays that fuels our gathering. But Lord, that also is very personal. It's relating to you one-to-one. God, give us your spirit to change our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.